historically, who was the most important person that you would find in a town? Who was the one person that everyone looked up to, that everyone would seek out in a time of trouble? Who was that one central person that no town really could do without? And I'm not speaking so much historically of that person in the last 100, 200 years, but I'm thinking back one or 2,000 years. That person was the priest. See, the priest's role was so important in the life of, of, of people historically because of the role that they fulfilled. And we're going to look today as we continue the series on Jesus as prophet, priest and king at the role of the priest and how Jesus, our great high priest, is the one who uh, intercedes for us and, and fulfills that role. As a, a point of reminder, I wanted to, to go through those three definitions I gave last week of these three roles. We looked last week, obviously, at the prophet. And a prophet is a mediator between God and man with a focus on revealing God's will to man. A priest is a mediator between God and man with a focus on representing man to God. And then a king, which we'll look at next week, is a mediator between God and man with a focus on realizing God's authority here on earth. Turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews. Might seem an interesting point. Last week we started in the Old Testament to understand the role of the prophet. But it's the thing is with the Old Testament priesthood, we'd be here all day, even trying to do it from, from this passage is going to take us a while. But there is no concise paragraph like we had last week on the prophet for the role of the priest. The role of the priest is really defined through the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. But we have a great summary statement here in the book of Hebrews as to the role of the priest. And we'll use that as our foundation for today as we look through. So in Hebrews chapter 5, just after the passage that, that Mark read for us this morning. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so let's start looking here at the role of the priest. And the first point of the role of the priest, and I've mentioned this in passing really, is to, for the priest, his role is to come before God on behalf of men, to come before God on behalf of men. That's what we see there at the start of verse 1. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. But it, it leads us into that question, we asked it of the prophet, but why do we need a priest? Why do we need someone to be a priest for us? Well, the answer is much the same as we had for the prophet. The problem is our sin. And you see, our sin separates us from God. If we were, as Adam and Eve, in a right relationship with God, we would have no need of a priest to offer sacrifices for us. We'd have no need of somebody to come between us to be a mediator between us and God, because we would be able to come before him ourselves. But in our sin, we cannot approach God because God is holy. God is separate from his creation. God cannot abide in the presence of sin and therefore sin cannot come into his presence. And so we need one who is set apart, one who is able to come before God on our behalf in order to approach God and bring our needs before him. We also, for that, need our sin covered. See, when our sin is uncovered, when our sin does not have an, an, an atonement made for it, 
When we are living in our sin, the wrath of God abides upon us and we need something to remove that wrath. And so the blood of bulls and goats, as the writer to the Hebrews describes it, was used in in old times in order to seek to cover the sin of the people. Think back to the garden. See, Adam and Eve created perfect, walking in fellowship with God, with God in the cool of the evening. And then they transgressed the commandment of God. They ate of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they realized their nakedness. They realized their shame. And they tried to cover themselves, didn't they? They sewed together fig leaves in order to try and cover their nakedness, but that was not good enough. See, when God came down, when God questioned them and asked them what they had done, God had to clothe them himself with an animal skin. And there was a foreshadowing of what was to come. You see, our sin is so great that we cannot cover it merely with the the fruit of the ground. But something must die. There must be the shedding of blood in order for sin to be covered. And that is why God killed animals and then clothed them in the skins of those animals. So the priest is to come before and draw near to God on behalf of those who are unable to do it themselves. But what this also means is that the priest himself needs to be set apart from the people. He needs to be separate from, to be distinct from the people. Because if he is just the same as the people, he is no better. He has no ability to approach God himself. That's why we see in in our text in in Hebrews there, that the priest has to, um, is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins because the priests of the old covenant were all sinners just like you and I. And their sin needed to be atoned for, their sin needed to be covered as well. But within that, and we see this through the book of Leviticus, there were extra regulations that were given to the priests about how they were to live their lives. See, in the Old Covenant, there were two distinctions. You had that which is holy, that which is set apart, that which is for honourable use, to use the term out of Romans 9. And then you have everything else. Everything else is common. It's for common use. It can be used in, in any way that it needs to be used. And within the common, there were two definitions, that which is clean, that which can draw to the holy, and that which is unclean, which cannot. Anything unclean must be cleansed in order to then be clean and then be able to come towards that which is set apart, which is holy. And so the priests, in order to minister to God, had to be set apart. And what we see, therefore, is the strict regulations for the Levites and the priests through the book of Leviticus around what they could and could not do. Think, for example, in terms of marriage. An Israelite man was free to marry any woman he so chose from within the family of God, from within the nation of Israel. But a Levite was not. A Levite could only marry within the tribe of Levi. He had to be set apart, and part of the reason for that was the fact that this priesthood was hereditary. It came from being part of the tribe of Levi. And so they could only marry within their family. But it got even more strict as you went from the Levites and into the priests, and time doesn't permit us today to talk about the distinctions between the Levites and the priests, but the priests had a a, a greater level of, of restriction on who they could marry. They could only marry within the tribe of Levi, yes, but they could only mar- they could marry um, a divorced woman only if she was the wife Sorry, no, she, they couldn't marry a divorced woman, but they could, they could marry a widow as long as she had been the wife of a priest. And then you have the high priest to step up again, who was only permitted to marry a virgin, again, from within the tribe of Levi. Increasing regulations and restrictions as the people drew closer to God to ensure that they were kept apart. 
There was also regulations on the touching of a dead body. You see, to touch a dead body made one unclean. And so therefore the priests were only permitted to touch a dead body if it was a close relative. They could not make themselves unclean for just anybody. There had to be a close relative. And even the high priest could not touch a dead body at all, not even if his mother or father died. So they had to be set apart. They had to be separate from the people because if they were just milling around and and mixing with the people, doing the same as what the people were doing, how were they any better? How could they then approach God on behalf of the people? Which raises then a question around if if the priests need to be set apart, if they need to be separate, if they need to be different, how is a priest appointed? Who gets to decide who is a priest or not? Does somebody just one day rock up at the temple and decide, I want to be a priest? Here we are, I'll I'll set myself apart. No, a priest needed to be appointed by the call of God. We saw that in our text, Hebrews 5 verse 4. No one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the calling to be a priest, the calling to be set apart to God is not one that we make of our own volition, but is one that God puts upon a man to set him apart for the work of that ministry. We see that calling in Exodus 28 verse 1, the calling specifically of Aaron. God says to Moses, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. It is a calling of God that is required to appoint one to the priesthood and particularly to the high priesthood. But that's all within the realm of the, the old covenant. There were priests before the old covenant as well. Again, I go back to that opening question, who was the most important person? See, we have record prior to Moses that it was the head of the extended family who was responsible for being the priest for the family, for offering those sacrifices, for interceding between his family and God, being there and fulfilling that role of the priest. We see Adam fulfilling the role of priest. We see Noah and Job, Abraham and Jacob. See, they they built altars. They offered sacrifices upon those altars in order to draw us closer, or the people closer to God. And that leads in to the second part, and and probably the most well understood component of the role of a priest. And that is to minister through offerings. To minister through offerings. And see, this is all about reconciling man to God. It's about bringing man closer to God to restore the relationship that has been destroyed by sin. That was the role of the priest, was to be that mediator, that intermediate, the one who stood in that gap. And they would do so by making offerings. There's a technical term I want to introduce you to at this point. It's a term expiation. Expiation means to make atonement or satisfaction for sin. It's to pay the penalty that is due for sin that is required. It's closely related to another big word, propitiation. Propitiation looks at it from the other side, is the ability of God to forgive now that the payment has been made for sin. And that is what the role of the priest was to do, was to expiate the sin of the people to provide the offerings, to be the one who would stand in that gap and to present those offerings before God. And we see through the Old Testament, through Leviticus, five main offerings that were required of the people of Israel to give on a regular basis to God. This is the people themselves being able to to give these offerings. The first three of them that we'll look at were general offerings, and they would have been typical in most religions would have seen them coming around and they were voluntary offerings, ones that people would bring as they felt compelled to do so. But the last two that we'll look at were specific to Israel and these were compulsory in certain circumstances. And so we see as we go through Leviticus, uh, in Leviticus chapter 1, we see the burnt offering. 
And so this was common through, through most religions. You see it in, in the ancient Near East. And even more recently, the offering of a whole animal upon an altar as, a, as to be consumed by fire. And that was to make expiation for general unknown sin. It was a general offering to God to, to seek them to be ple- uh, the favor of God, to, to have God look favorably upon the person. Now, within the Israelites, uh, that was to be a bull or a goat. You see it in other religions, such as some of the Canaanite religions, that they would offer children on that altar to try and bring the favor of God. But the Israelites were to offer only bulls and goats in that scenario or birds. The second was a grain offering. We see this defined in Leviticus chapter 2. And this was primarily a thanks for God's provision, to say, thank you, Lord, that you've provided for us the needs that we have. Again, a voluntary offering that could be made. The third one we see is the peace offering. And this is described for us in Leviticus chapter 3. This was a shared meal that would come between people, generally indicating reconciliation between people. Or it was used to celebrate reconciliation between the person and God. Having made offering for sin, which we'll see in a moment, a peace offering would be shared and it was a a shared meal. We see echoes of this when we take communion. There's echoes in this when we partake of communion, a shared meal where we're declaring that we have peace with God. And so those are the three general offerings that were common amongst many religions, but particularly within the Israelite religion, within Judaism, we see two more. We see the first one being a sin offering described in Leviticus Leviticus chapters 4 and 5. And this was to remove the consequences for a specific sin. Starts out in Leviticus chapter 4, describing that if somebody sins unintentionally against the law of God and then is made aware of it, this is what they are to do. This is what they are to bring. And depending upon who it is that has sinned, the offering is different. You see, it's different if a common person sins than when a priest sinned. And so the, the level of offering was different between them. To, to give you an idea, this, is, this offering was kind of like today doing jail time for a crime that you've committed. It wasn't directly like that because this was all about unintentional sin. But it's, we can have that picture. And then the, four, the fifth of the offerings that were required was the guilt or the trespass offering. And we see this at the end of Leviticus 5. And this was a repayment of any debt that was incurred due to the sin that had been committed unintentionally. So if you defrauded your neighbor or, or stolen something, not realizing that, you had to repay what was owed along with a penalty on top of that. So that's, I guess, say, returning what had been stolen to make restitution for that. And often it would then be accompanied with a sin offering and a peace offering. But you see, for the priests, they had to know these different offerings. They had to understand these requirements because what was required in each was different. What was to be done with the animals in each was different. For example, we we mentioned the burnt offering. That was to be consumed wholly upon the altar. But then we look to the the sin offering and portion of that would go to the priests. The, The blood would be thrown against the side of the altar as opposed to being poured out at the base of the altar. There were specifics and so the priests had to understand what was required for each of these but then they also needed to teach the people. They needed to instruct the people as to what offerings were required in certain circumstances. They had to know what was pleasing to God. They couldn't make it up as they went along. Priest couldn't go, I like you, a, t- a single turtle dove will do for you, but no, you, you need four goats. It didn't work that way. There were prescribed offerings and they had to, to know those, to explain those, and then they had to make sure that the people knew that they had to bring unblemished animals, that they couldn't bring a lame animal or a diseased animal, but they had to be offering the best of the flock that was a part of the role of the priest was to teach. And in this, In this ministration of offerings, one of the other roles that the priest had was to intercede for the people, to stand into the gap, to to stand before God and to call out to God fundamentally through prayer. 
But unlike when we looked at the prophet where the prophet would pray for the nations and often pray judgment upon them. This, this intercessionary prayer that the priest would give was petitioning God to forgive the person on the basis of his nature and the basis of the, the offering that had been brought. It was to remind God as much as God ever needs reminding but, and to draw his attention to the fact that yes, this person has sinned, but this person has now done what was required in order to make, ato- make atonement for that sin, to be right with God. We see this, for example, mentioned in Joel, as Joel is speaking of the new covenant to come. But he's, he's also um, calling to the priests in Joel 2 verse 17. He says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say amongst the peoples, where is their God? This is calling out to God, asking God to remember his covenant. We see Moses doing the same for the people at the, when uh, they build that, built that golden calf. And God is hot with anger towards the people. And Moses stands in the gap, he intercedes for them, and he says, God, remember your promise. What will the people say that you were unable to take, you were able to take them out of Egypt in such a mighty fashion, but you could not keep your people and so you destroyed them in the wilderness? Think of your holy name and do not destroy your people. Forgive them. What is the offering that is therefore required to do that? And that was a role of the priest to do that, to remind God of his covenant faithfulness, of what God had promised would happen if the people did what they should do. We've mentioned also the high priest. So if the priest's role is to to minister through offerings, to be set apart, to intercede for the people, the high priest had the same roles, but at a greater level. See, whereas the individual priests would minister to individuals. Think, for example, I've I've sinned in, in Israel and I come to the temple bringing my lamb as an offering. And I meet one of the priests at the door of the temple because I cannot go into the altar. I'm I'm, set, I'm not set apart, I'm not holy, I'm common, so I cannot enter into that area of the temple. And so the priest would meet me at the gate. He'd take the offering with me and, and there at the entrance to the gate, we would, we would sacrifice that animal. And then the priest would take it in on my behalf and he would offer it uh, to God on my behalf. He'd make intercession for me and remind God to forgive me now that I had brought the necessary offering for that. Well, the, the high priest had a greater role. See, he had to minister to the priests. See, when a priest sinned, he couldn't just go up to another priest. He had to go to the high priest and have the high priest offer the sacrifice on his behalf. And then the high priest also had that role once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where he would take the blood of the goat into the Holy of Holies to be that one mediator, the only person who could enter into that place where the presence of God dwelled, bringing the blood of a goat to sprinkle before the mercy seat that sat atop of the Ark of the Covenant. And because of that, that's why he had to be further set apart because he went into the most holy place. The priests could go into that holy place to light the can to make sure the lights uh, and the menorah were still going to replace the showbread to burn incense on the altar but they could not go any further in that was the role of the high priest and then the priests would also offer judgment and 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 operate as judges to bring decisions and and help decide disputes but ultimately that fell to the high priest and he would do that through the use of the urim and the thummim Again, we do not have time to go into the details of those and and what it meant. But you also see the high priest ministering, as he ministers before the Lord, Lord, having upon him that ephod. And on the two shoulders, the two onyx stones with the names of the tribes inscribed on his shoulders as he bore the burdens of the nation before God, carrying their weight upon his shoulders as he ministered before God. And then on his breastplate, 
The twelve stones arranged in, in rows with each of them with the name of one of the tribes as he bore them close to his heart, remembering them in his prayers before God. He was the priest to the nation. It was his role to intercede on behalf of the nation and the people, whilst the individual priests ministered to the individuals as they came through. And so as we look at the role of the priest, if we look at understanding what a priest must do, I want to draw our attention now to Jesus the priest. To Jesus the priest. And Samuel uh, records for us that there was a priest to come. Just as Moses prophesied of a prophet to come, one who would be like Moses, so, so Samuel spoke of a priest to come. You see, Samuel was a faithful prophet and a faithful priest where the high priest was being unfaithful. And in 1 Samuel 2.35, God says to Samuel, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. There was a priest to come, one who was not of the line of Levi, of the tribe of Levi. And that priest is Jesus. But it's important for us to note that Jesus is never mentioned as a priest prior to his ascension. It is only after he ascended to heaven that we have record and detail of Jesus and his role as a priest. And there's a very simple reason for that. If Jesus had attempted to operate as a priest here on earth, he would have been kicked out of the temple. Because Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not a priest according to the line of Aaron. He did not have that hereditary priesthood and therefore would have been barred from ministering in the temple if he had attempted to do so. It's why all references to his priestly work are post his ascension. And we see a detailed exposition of Jesus' role as high priest through the book of Hebrews. One of the more misunderstood books because we don't understand that Old Testament role of the high priest, what his, his role and his job and his purpose was. But I, I do highly commend to you to take an opportunity, read through that central section of Hebrews from 4.14 through to 10.18 as it details Jesus' role as high priest. We're going to skim through that so quickly today. I feel really bad about doing that. We just don't have the time to go through it. And so let's think about those, those criteria for a priest. Think about the, the ministering roles of priests and see how Jesus fulfills those. The first of which is that the priest must be called by God. He cannot take up that mantle for himself, but must be called by God. And we see that in Hebrews 5, verses 5 and 6. And there the apostle writes, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it's a fascinating study to to look at Melchizedek, to see him, this king and priest, the king of Salem, the priest of the God Most High to whom Abraham gives tithes, demonstrating the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Time does not permit us to go into that either today, sadly. But we see there that Jesus is a priest appointed by God, not taking that role upon himself. Secondly, we see that Jesus as a priest is set apart. It seems kind of obvious that that he would be set apart, that he would be holy because Jesus is God himself. But again, the writer to the Hebrews um, emphasizes that in Hebrews 7 from verse 26 where he says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And then to draw that contrast to the priesthood of the Levites, he goes on to say, he has no need like those high priests, the high priests descendant from Aaron, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, And then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. 
So Jesus was called by God to be a priest. He was set apart by God in his role as priest. And we see there the leading into that third of those roles that Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice himself. This is expanded in Hebrews 9 from verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tent there referenced to the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness, but into the greater and more perfect tent, one not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he, he, he took his own blood in. See, the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies as he came bearing the blood of that, that goat that was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus needed blood to be able to go into the Holy of Holies, that greater and more perfect tent to that holy place that is heaven to make atonement for our sin. But he did it not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That is why the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 14 can say, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering. So a great sermon, um, a sermon clip by a man named Artaxerdia. And he, he speaks of the one thing that is missing in terms of furniture in the temple. There's one thing that's conspicuous by its absence, and that is a chair. But that's intentional, you see, because the work of the priest in the old covenant was never done. He could not go and sit down in his relaxing chair, put his feet up and say, my work here is done. No, the sacrifices had to be given daily, constantly. The fire on the bronze altar was never to go out because there was always to be sacrifices coming before God. But Jesus, when Jesus entered into the most holy place in heaven, he did one thing that no other priest had ever done in, his, in their life beforehand. Jesus sat down because his work was finished. He had completed the task. He had made, he used one offering that perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And now, Jesus is still working on our behalf. The work of sacrifice, the work of offering is done. But now, Jesus is there before the throne interceding on our behalf, standing in the gap. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he is standing before God, mediating, interceding, praying for you and I before the Father day and night on our behalf. Praying that God the Father would look at those whom Jesus has redeemed and see Jesus' sacrifice as being sufficient and covering them. This is why we see in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And because he continues forever, for this reason, consequently, he is able to save completely to the uttermost. There is no ifs, buts, or maybes. Jesus is the perfect saviour because... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The old covenant priests would die. High priest would die, new high priest would need to be appointed. Some of them were good, many of them were bad, and, and at the time of Jesus... That moved away. The, the high priest was not even of the tribe of Levi. It had become a political appointment, something that you, you sought to gain because it brought wealth and prestige. It had, it had moved away from serving the people and had become about serving oneself. But Jesus, the great high priest, always lives to intercede on your behalf. What that means 
is that when you sin, Jesus is there reminding God the Father that His shed blood covers your sin. That He has paid the penalty for your sin and therefore that transgression is not to be counted against you any longer. And God the Father honours that. We see an example of this intercession in Jesus' high priestly prayer. The whole prayer is John 17, but at the end of it, after praying specifically for his disciples, Jesus goes on and we read in John 17 from verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that is for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's your Savior praying for you. And you know what? God the Father always answers the prayers of God the Son. That prayer is being answered even now because the Father will always answer the prayer of the Son. And so as He intercedes for you, as He reminds God the Father of His sacrifice on your behalf, God will forgive your your trespasses and your transgressions because of the work of Jesus Christ. And you can take that to heaven. Praise God for that. So what is our response? How are we to live in light of Jesus as our high priest. Well, the first of them is that we ourselves are to fulfill the duties of a priest. I want to take a moment here and and, and point out that that is not in the mistaken Roman Catholic perspective of a priest. Because the Roman Catholics believe that we have priests in the line of, of Aaron effectively still today. We have priests that operate in the same way. You see, in Catholic theology... The ministers are claimed to be priests in in that sense of the Old Testament priests for three reasons. The first is because they are mediators between between God and the people. So a Roman Catholic priest is the mediator you must go to. That is why they have confession. You You cannot go directly to God to confess your sin. You must go to the priest and the priest will act as a mediator between you and God in confession of sin. With that, they will then, they also then offer a propitiatory sacrifice. Again, we go back to that big word. A sacrifice that that turns the, the wrath of God away from you in the form of the Eucharist. The Eucharist being uh, what the Roman Catholics call communion. And it's sad that they've taken such a beautiful word. The word Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. But in the Roman Catholic theology, what the priest does when he's up there is he literally turns the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a daily basis before the people of God. Because in Catholic theology, the once-for-all sacrifice on the tree is not sufficient. Yes, it's a bloodless sacrifice. Yes, it's a representation of the same sacrifice, but it's required over and over and over again. 
not a once-for-all sacrifice that is what we have. And then thirdly, the priest in Catholic theology is able to determine whether a sacrifice has been sufficient for you for the removal of sins. And this is why you have the, the prayers of the rosary. The priest saying to somebody as they come and confess their sin, go and perform four Hail Marys, three rosaries, do these things in order to have your sins forgiven. This is why the Roman Catholic theology allows for the, the concept of indulgences where a coin and the copper rings are sold from purgatory springs. This was the cry of Tetzel leading up to the Reformation. That's not the sense that I'm saying that we are to be priests. This is why, because of these, this theology, that Catholics will refer to their minister as father. It's why the, the priests have the title, Alter Christus. It simply means another Christ. See, to a Catholic, the priest is another Christ, another priest standing in the line of Christ. He is there to be Christ to you. But that is not what Scripture te teaches us. The heresy in the Catholic Church goes deeper. The Pope is known as the Vicar of Christ. Vicar simply meaning instead of. See, to a Catholic, the priest and the Pope stand in the place that Christ should be. That is not what I say we are, when I say we are to fulfill the role of a priest. We are not to stand in the gap as Christ to one another or to other people. We are to be a priest ministering before God, yes, but in much the same way that an Old Testament priest was there serving and ministering and helping the high priest so we are to help minister and serve before our great high priest, Jesus. Our ministry as priests should be pointing people to Jesus. Calling people to go before him, to take their sins, their burdens before him, to, to petition him. We can pray for people on their behalf. But we don't pray as one standing in the gap, one who someone else must come to but we pray as a fellow believer. I mean, we can see this relatively obviously. We think of, of elders in the church in this way to a certain extent, that they might stand in the gap a bit more, that they pray for the, the people on, on behalf of them, much as a, a priest would do so. And that is one of the roles of an elder, is to pray for you and for me, to pray for each other as, as we minister um, before God. But we are all called to be priests. It's, theologians call it the priesthood of all believers. We see Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 calling to the, to the people saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. In this sense is how we are to be priests, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, making him known because we have been called out of darkness and we should be used to call others out of darkness. Not that it's through us, but that it's through Christ and Christ alone. And remember, it was only the priests who were able to draw near to God in the temple, the common man had to stay outside of the temple, outside of the tabernacle. He could not enter in to that inner sanctum. But we can boldly approach the throne of grace now because of the work of Jesus. Because the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. It signified that the way to God has now been made open for the common man. But it is only through Jesus and so as priests, we are able to draw near to God to bring our own petitions directly to Him. We do not need to go through another mediator because Jesus is our mediator, God Himself, and so we can come directly before Him. And so for that reason, we are to be set apart for God. We are to be holy, blameless, set apart before God. We are not to be the same as the people who live around us. There should be something distinctive about a Christian. 
that makes people sit up and take notice and, and wonder what's different about that person. Why are they not the same as everybody else? It's why Peter, as he goes on, having said that we are to be, that we are a holy priesthood, a, a royal nation, he says, uh, chapter 2 from verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our lives are to be lived in such a way that on the day of judgment, that day of visitation, unbelievers will give glory to God for the testimony that we have proclaimed to them, even though they rejected that testimony. We are to be priests ministering before them, and we are to offer sacrifices before God. But hold on, didn't I say that there's no need for sacrifices anymore? Hasn't Jesus done it all with his sacrifice? Yes, he's done it all with his sacrifice, but the sacrifices we are to offer are not bloody sacrifices. They are not animals. They are not our, our blood, because that's been done for us. No, we are to offer other sacrifices. David in Psalm 51 uh, from verse 16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken uh, and contrite heart. Oh, sorry, a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's the sacrifice we are to offer. Being humble enough to know that we cannot make ourselves right with God. That we need Jesus to be our high priest, to be our sacrifice, to intercede on our behalf. We are to have that broken spirit that in us says, I cannot do it. I am a sinner through and through, Lord. Forgive me. Have mercy upon me. As David did through Psalm 51. Psalm 40, we also see the same thought. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Sacrifice of obedience to God. See, what, what God wants of us is obedience. What he wants is that broken heart that comes before him and says, I cannot do it, I need you, but also I am going to obey you, I'm going to listen to you. We'll draw this more out next week when we look at Jesus as king. But we're not to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus. We're not to look at the blood of Jesus and go, well, because all my sins are paid for, I can go and live a licentious lifestyle. I can be as bad as the heathens in the way that I conduct myself. As Paul says in Romans, what should we say then? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. It's the most emphatic negative we can have there. We are to be obedient. That is to be our offering, our sacrifice to God because we love him. We're also to offer ourselves in service to him. That is our sacrifice, Romans 12.1. We should probably mostly be able to quote this from heart, from, from memory. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice that draws out that obedience See, a living sacrifice doesn't hop down off of the altar when it gets tired of being a sacrifice. A living stone, which is the foundation of the church, does not decide, I don't like being in this wall, I'm going to get up and wander off and go and start another building somewhere else. A living stone calls others 
to be part of that in obedience. That's how we will stand apart from the world, is by our obedience to Christ. And it will become more difficult as persecution increases in our lives. And as well as offering ourselves in service, we're also to offer praise to God as sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verse 15, the writer says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. A sacrifice of praise, acknowledging his name, thanking him for what he has done, declaring who he is, praising him for his attributes. And that's easy when things are going well. If we're getting the things that we want from God, it's relatively easy to praise Him. There are whole movements dedicated to that. Getting what you want from God and then thanking Him because He's your cosmic genie and butler that turns up and delivers exactly when you want it. But it's harder to praise God for who He is when things are tough. When we're going through trials and tribulations, when we are not getting the things that we want... We are to then continue to praise God, trusting Him that what He is doing is for our good and for His glory in accordance with His promises. But think of Paul and Silas. They're in Philippi. They've been arrested yet again, put into prison yet again, beaten yet again. And and how did they react Acts 16, verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, that is, the the Jews upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here they are, shackled to the floor by their feet. can shuffle a little bit, but you're not going to get very comfortable on a hard floor leaning up against a wall. And what did Paul and Silas do? They grumbled. They moaned. God, why did you do this to us? No, they didn't. What did they do? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God in praise, worship, and adoration of God. Think also of Uh, Peter and John, taken by the Sanhedrin for, for preaching Jesus, told not to preach Jesus and beaten to say, do not do this again or we'll, we'll make it worse. And what did they do? They went away skulking away, sulking, complaining, crying. No, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. How's that for being a priest? How's that for ministering to people around you as you're going through trials and tribulations to be doing so, praising God, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encouraging one another as we go through those trials and those tribulations, demonstrating to the world that God is faithful, praying for those who persecute us and spitefully use us, loving our enemies, What's the most loving thing we can do for our enemies? Pray for them that God would save them and then proclaim the gospel to them. What's that likely to get you? More persecution. But that is the life of the priest. Set apart for God, willing to do anything that God calls you to do because you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. And that leads into the the final thing that we're to do as priests, and that is to intercede for others. To intercede for others. Not that we're the ones that can stand in that gap. Not that we're the ones that can uh, mediate between others and God. But because we have a great mediator, we can approach God and we can pray for others. And the purpose of this intercession is to be reconciliation between those who are unsaved and God. 
This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. That The word reconciliation is very re- closely related to the word atonement. Not that we offer anything that reconciles people to God. We cannot make up for somebody's sin through our own sacrifice. But what we can do is we can plead with other people to be reconciled to God. We do it within the church. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they they shall see God. We are to be about our Father's business, reconciling the world to itself. We're going through a phase in the world, and particularly in, in Western cultures, where we are at each other constantly. We're, we're seeing divides in our nation that we've not seen before. They've been simmering under the surface, but they're rising up. America is probably the worst example of this at the moment but it's not limited to America. But we have a message of reconciliation. There is now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the foundation of reconciliation, me to another human, is Jesus Christ. But it starts with reconciliation between me and God. And that is the ministry with which we have been entrusted. As a priest, we're to to stand in the gap, to intercede before the people, to pray for them, to pray for the unbelievers around us, that God would be merciful to them based solely upon the work of Jesus Christ. Let us cry out to our God for the salvation of our neighbours, of our family, of our friends, of our leaders, of our nation, and of this world. Let us intercede, let us be there before the throne of grace, setting aside our own desires, bringing them secondarily, tertiarily, somewhere down the line, and let us be focused on ministering for other people, on behalf of other people, before the Lord, first and foremost. Because that is the role of the priest, to be there, to not look to ourselves, but to look to that reconciliation between man and God. And let us do it through the blessed work of Jesus Christ, knowing that He has done it all and there is nothing that we can do to make up for that. Father God, we thank You that You are gracious and merciful, that You sent us the great High Priest, Jesus that through his impeccable life, through his ministry, his, his offering upon the cross, he was able to come before you with the blood of that offering to take it and purify us from our sin because he has made propitiation and expiation for our sin. It is so wonderful that we are able to be reconciled to you. We were lost, hopefully lost, in our own sin. You gave us a picture in the old covenant of the requirements that, that would need to be fulfilled, that it was only through the shedding of innocent blood that there could be forgiveness of sin. But that the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient. And so, Jesus, you willingly took it upon yourself to come, to humble yourself, to serve as our great high priest, to minister before the Father on our behalf, to offer yourself as that one perfect sacrifice that we could be made right with the Father. And that now you ever live to intercede as well. Your work is is not finished, but that you are ever before the Father pleading for us on, on, on our behalf through your work that we would be reconciled to God. And we know that it is a sure thing 
because you are that great and faithful high priest with that indestructible life. Help us to go forth to be as priests in in this world to proclaim the goodness of you, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the name of Jesus, to plead with those around us to be reconciled to you. Help us to live that holy and set-apart life of a priest that we can boldly come before you, bringing our concerns and our petitions before God the Father, before you, Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We honour you, we praise you, and we thank you that you are our great High Priest, Lord Jesus. Amen.